0: Would you pray with me? Our Lord and God, our shepherd, we come as your sheep before you this morning, asking that through your word, you would cause us to lie down in green pastures, that you would lead us beside still waters, that we would experience the abundance of life that you provide for us as our shepherd. May your word be sweet to the taste that our souls would just drink deeply, that we would love you, O Lord, more and more because of who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. The words barely escaped her mouth. Doubt, anxiety, fear filled her heart and mind as she sat quietly in the dark, rocking her toddler to sleep. A great high priest whose name is Love Whoever lives and pleads for me. But does he? What if? What if I've been wrong about Jesus all this time? What, what if those things I learned as a child in Sunday school are a lie? My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. Are they really? Is my name written on his heart? Is, is Jesus really who and what he claimed to be? Did he really do what he said he did? And am I really safe and secure in his arms? Alyssa was experiencing a crisis of faith. Her peace, assurance, and hope in Christ were under fierce attack. Why? What had happened to get her to this place? Well, she shares. She says, We've all heard stories of Christian kids who walk away from their faith after being challenged by skeptical professors in a college classroom. My faith was confronted in a similar way, but not at a university. It was challenged in the pews of a church. It was rocked by a pastor who had won my trust, respect, and loyalty. This wasn't some random weirdo I'd met during a street outreach on Hollywood Boulevard who spouted vitriol against God as I handed him a gospel tract. This was an educated, intellectual, calm, and eloquent church leader, someone who expressed love for Jesus. He was a brilliant communicator, and he had a bone to pick with Christianity. Meeting after meeting, every precious belief I held about Jesus was placed on an intellectual chopping block and hacked to pieces. This pastor, this shepherd, used his position of authority to call into question the very tenets of her faith. The virgin birth? Doesn't matter. The resurrection? Well, if you want to believe in something like that. Heaven? Well, if it's true, then everyone from all religions will be accepted. Hell? That's simply a sadistic lie designed to manipulate the weak and feeble-minded. And substitutionary atonement? Even high schoolers have moved beyond such a primitive, barbaric notion. There are many voices in this world, and they're all vying for our allegiance, all seeking our devotion and clamoring for us to listen to them, to believe them, to follow them. Many of these deceptive voices claim to be biblical and Christian, among them Roman Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. But Those are just the big, organized voices. There are multitudes of other wolves more embedded in the church like the pastor in this story. Charismatic personalities that persuade people to believe in false gospels, false Christs, and all other manner of heresy. The enemy is always trying to steal, kill, and destroy. And he has plenty of voices to use to accomplish that end. He wants to rob us. He wants to rob us, Christ's sheep, of our peace, of our rest, of our hope, of our assurance, of our freedom, of our abundant life. He wants to kill it. He wants to destroy it. I know numerous people who have begun listening to these wolves in shepherd's clothing, people that are now filled with uncertainty rather than assurance, restlessness rather than peace, fear rather than hope, people like Alyssa, because they now doubt the substitutionary atonement, the deity, the justice, the goodness, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't new. The apostles warned of this in the early church. Paul said, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among them, from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And Peter warned, There will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought who bought them, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And long and long, long before that, Jesus addressed the same problem. It's what chapter ten is mainly about. It's why Jesus assur- asserts that I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And the reason why he encourages and promises, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Amid this culture where many fierce wolves will come in among us and strive to destroy our peace, assurance, and hope, God wants us to know that since Jesus is the good shepherd, his sheep will hear his voice, are known by him, And will follow him. This then is the point of this morning's message. Since Jesus is the Good Shepherd, his sheep will hear his voice, they are known by him, and will follow him. This truth is the foundation of your peace, of every believer's peace, of your rest, of your hope, of your assurance. And it's the protection against the enemy's attacks. This truth is the basis of our experience and enjoyment of the abundant life. So if you would turn with me to chapter 10 of John. Now, there's a problem here, isn't there? I see it. The problem is that I'm up here telling you these things and asking you to believe them. Just like Alyssa's pastor just like the Pharisees and all other false shepherds do. It can and probably does appear hypocritical and self-serving. How do you know that I'm not one of those people that Jesus is talking about in this passage? Or Kurt, or Bill, or Josh, or Mike, or Wolf. I mean, his name is Wolf, after all. (laughs) It couldn't be more obvious, could it? So why listen to Wolf and why listen to me? Well, I'm not going to try and convince you. The answer is in the passage. The answer of who to listen to is given by Jesus. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I'm only here to point you to him and his words, to his voice. Look at Jesus' teachings and Jesus' standards of truth as he lays them out here. It doesn't matter whether you believe me. It matters if you believe him. And if I say anything that deviates from or disagrees with Jesus' words here, I beg you, please, please, please listen to him and not me. Okay? Everybody say, okay. Thank you. And then there's another responsibility I have for you all. You need to come to me after And tell me so that I can repent because I want to believe Jesus' words too. It's true of all of us that stand behind this pulpit. If there's anything that we say or have said that you don't understand or that you think deviates from the Lord's word, we want you to come and talk to us about it. Please, we're fallible. And that is the understatement of the year. We want you to know that we're all accessible and want to talk with you. I'll be available to talk over here at the side after service. Kurt will be out, Bill will be out in the foyer after service as well if you want to talk to them. capish? So let's continue. As we come to this morning's passage, we need to recognize three things to understand it rightly thing number 1 context number 2 context number 3 very good actually there are three points of context here first this is a continuation of the story in chapter 9 as a matter of fact as we pick up in chapter 10 we are mid speech we are right in the middle of something that Jesus is saying you see Jesus had just miraculously given sight to the man born blind The man had a newfound hope and joy because of Jesus. The religious leaders, well, they're incredulous. And they revile this man and his testimony. And they cast him out. Excommunication. You're done. Get out of here. You're not welcome at the temple or in this community anymore. And so Jesus comes to this man and cares for him. He ministers to him in the midst of this new emotional and spiritual attack. The man believes in Jesus and worships him. And then Jesus says to him, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? If you were blind, says Jesus, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That's the end of chapter 9. Chapter 10, truly, truly, see, right? same, Same thing he's saying here. Your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And so Jesus is speaking to and about these leaders, these shepherds of Israel in the face of them casting this man out that Jesus has just healed. Second, Jesus is comparing and contrasting these leaders with himself, their actions, their character with his actions and his character how he treats God's sheep versus how they treat God's sheep. And third, Jesus is using figures of speech to do it. As John says in verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. Now, originally, Jesus was using the figure of speech of the physical trait of blindness and equating it to spiritual blindness. But now he, he turns, he pivots a little bit to a second metaphor about sheep and a shepherd. And it's this second metaphor that really permeates most of the rest of the passage. Now, I know that we don't interact much with shepherd and sheep imagery these days. Any of you know any shepherds? Me either. But sheep and shepherd were commonplace and familiar to Jesus' audience. And it was a regular metaphor for spiritual truth. It would, they, they said things like, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Jeremiah declared, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. He who scattered Israel will gather them. He will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. And of course, there's that one that none of us know, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And so Jesus incorporates this sheep shepherd figure of speech here to communicate to his audience who he is and to contrast himself with those religious leaders that are challenging him. It's these truths and contrasts that provide us with standards for discernment amidst our culture that's filled with these many dissonant voices clamoring for our attention and allegiance. It's understanding and applying these precious truths that will protect us from the enemy's flaming deceptions that threaten our peace, our assurance, our freedom, and our hope in Jesus. So I want to give you three truths this morning about Jesus as the Good Shepherd explain how each of these is contrasted with the false shepherds, and then give you some application. These three truths are, as the good shepherd, Jesus gathers and guides his sheep, he gives life to his sheep, and he guarantees the sheep of these truths. Number one, as the good shepherd, Jesus gathers and guides his sheep. During the riots in Palestine, In the mid-1930s, a village near Haifa was condemned to collective punishment by having its sheep and cattle seized by the government. The inhabitants of the town, the village, however, were permitted to redeem their possessions at a fixed price. Well, among them was an orphan shepherd boy whose six sheep were all he had in this world for life and work. Somehow he obtained the money for their redemption so he went to the large pen where all the animals from the village were kept, offering his money to the British sergeant in charge. The officer told him he was welcome to the requisite number of animals, but scoffed at the idea that he could possibly pick out those six sheep of his. Nonetheless, the young shepherd boy entered the pen with hundreds and hundreds of animals and gave his distinctive call. And immediately, his six Sheep separated from the rest of the animals and gathered to him. And then he guided them home. In our passage, Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. He goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. As the good shepherd, Jesus gathers and guides his flock. Now notice, he calls, he draws, he gathers them together. He leads them out. This is a major responsibility of shepherds, because sheep, well, they're really incapable of doing it themselves. You see, sheep are are known as being notoriously dim-witted. It's been said that there are three levels of stupidity in this world. There's dumb, there's dumber, and then there are sheep. It's also been said that if someone says that sheep are as dumb as a brick, They're actually insulting the brick. (laughs) Want an example? I could have done an entire sermon just on sheep. Here's one example. A few years ago, in Van province near the Iranian border, some shepherds left their flocks to head into a nearby village to grab lunch together. While they were gone, their sheep wandered over to a 50-foot deep ravine, and one after another... After another, after another, plunged to their deaths. 400 sheep. Now, there's good news. Nearly 1,100 other sheep survived. But it wasn't because they didn't follow those other sheep off the cliff. It's because those 400 dead sheep created this nice wall barrier. So as they fell, they bounced down the wall barrier and got back up. And we're like, whoa, what was that? Bass! Sheep are literally that dumb and that dependent on their shepherd. That's us, folks. That's not very nice. No, but it's true. Without their shepherd taking the initiative of gathering and guiding them to green pastures. And beside still waters, sheep would die. Now what's amazing is that God has gifted sheep with an ability that's pretty cool. And that is they are able to recognize their own shepherd's voice. That particular voice, out of all the voices in the world, they can recognize that one voice that is their shepherd. Wow that's pretty cool. And so when the shepherd calls them, they come to his voice, just as Jesus describes in this passage. And this is where Jesus draws the contrast with the false shepherds of Israel. He says, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. Okay, so this is heavy metaphor, right? What is Jesus saying here? The gatekeeper in this analogy is God. Jesus is the shepherd, and the Pharisees and religious leaders are the thieves that are entering the pen by climbing in other ways. Jesus is communicating the truth that he alone is qualified to enter the sheepfold and gather the sheep. He alone is qualified to enter the sheepfold and gather the sheep. He's claiming exclusivity here. He alone is the true leader of God's flock. That's what he's saying. There is no one else qualified. He alone is God's son. He alone is sinless. He alone is worthy. No one else is. And so all other shepherds that make this claim are deceivers. In the end, they're thieves and robbers trying to steal people from God's flock, trying to steal your freedom, trying to steal your abundant life. The exclusivity of Jesus is hated by all those who are not his sheep. I can't tell you how many people have recoiled when I've said that Jesus is the only Savior, the only Son of God, the only true Shepherd of God's people. People get mad. They get mad at me. I was like, but it's not my fault. I didn't make the claim. Jesus did, right? People insist that there must be others who've taught right paths to God, like Muhammad or, or Buddha or Charles Hayes Russell or Zoroaster or Dalai Lama or Joseph Smith. Yet Jesus says that all such so-called prophets, so-called shepherds, indeed anyone who teaches that there is any other true shepherd and leader of God's people. Besides him, people like this, people like Alyssa's pastor, authors, TV personalities, popular podcasters, they're strangers and thieves with dissonant voices seeking to rob God's people of their faith and hope in Christ. When these thieves climb into the walls of the church through the social media, television, podcasts, or even in the pulpit, and call out to God's true sheep, Jesus says, a stranger they will not follow. Mm. Praise the Lord for that. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. We hear the one voice. We hear the one voice. You who are Christ's, discern the voice. Discern the voice. Recognize whether it's a stranger or whether it's Christ. And if it's a stranger, flee. Don't go, well, I know that's probably not right, but it's really interesting. Hmm. Lest they rob you of your abundance of peace, security, and hope. There's only one who enters by the gate the Good Shepherd Jesus Christ. The great news is, is that he has entered by the gate. He did it. And he has and is gathering us to himself with his clear, powerful, distinctive, effectual, irresistible call and is guiding us to spiritual food and water along paths of righteousness. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. True under-shepherds, true followers of Jesus Christ in the church will always point you to Jesus and his exclusivity. Solus Christus. Christ alone. In Christ alone our hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Christ alone. Number two. As the good shepherd, Jesus gives life to his sheep. I heard the story of a shepherd who saw one of his sheep fall into a river. Well, if you guys know anything about sheep, they wool soaks up water. Sheep go bloop, 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 sheep can't swim. Shepherd saw this. Well, there was a problem. He didn't know how to swim either. But he wanted to save his sheep. So he jumped into the water in a desperate effort to rescue his sheep. Both bodies were found downriver about a mile. When you're drowning, you need help from someone who meets two requirements. First, he must be willing to rescue you, but that in and of itself won't do, will it? Second, the person must be able to rescue you. You will not be brought to shore successfully by someone who is himself going under. As Erwin Lutzer says, a rescuer cannot be a person who himself needs to be rescued. Duh! Only a person who has mastered the water, a person who is in control of his immediate surroundings, can be a savior. We're told by John that the Pharisees didn't understand what Jesus was getting at with his metaphor. And so Jesus develops and clarifies this truth by changing it slightly. He says, verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So now, not only is Jesus the shepherd, but he also says that he's the door or the gate. Jesus explains that the reason that he's the good shepherd is because he's the door. Jesus is the only way to be saved. But how can this be? How can he claim such exclusivity? Well, notice here what it is that Jesus says distinctly makes him the good shepherd and the door. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Hmm. The primary thing that demonstrates that Jesus is the good shepherd is that he gives his life for the sheep. Herein is the gospel, folks. You see, we've all sinned and deserve eternal punishment for belittling the infinite glory of God. The only means through which we can gain forgiveness, God's glory can simultaneously be vindicated and justice be upheld, is for someone else to pay the price for our sin. Someone must die because the wages of sin is death. But it can't be just anybody, can it? It can't be just anyone. It must be someone able to pay the infinite penalty to uphold the infinite worth of God's glory. Which means that sacrifice, that person, must be both sinless and infinite. And this is exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus said that he did as the good shepherd he willingly laid down his unblemished and infinitely valuable life for his sheep. Jesus died as a sinless substitutionary sacrifice to purchase our forgiveness and salvation, satisfying God's justice by suffering the sentence for our sin. This is the perfect work of the Good Shepherd and the reason that he is exclusively the Savior. Everybody else is drowning. Everybody. There are all the sheep drowning in the river. There is one. There is one who can save us. And he gives his life for us. And it is through Jesus giving his life that he gives us both abundant life and eternal life. These are descriptions of both our present and future spiritual condition. Well, that's pretty cool something you have now, if you're a believer, and will always have. Those who have entered through the door, through Jesus, who have heard his voice and follow him, have been given abundant and eternal life. So let's look at each of these. What, what does this mean? We'll begin with eternal life, for abundant life is based on eternal life. If you don't have eternal life, you're not going to have abundant life. I guarantee you that. The spiritual life that Jesus has given us is eternal. That means it is perpetual. It is unending. We possess it now and forever. And forever after that and forever after that and forever after that. Forever, ever. Nothing can destroy it. Jesus says here, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Verse 28. And they... Shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. What do you think about him? Well, he says no one is able to snatch them out of his hand either. Those of us who are trusting Christ have it on Christ's word that they possess eternal life. You have it. Listen to those absolutes and those words of Jesus. Eternal, never, no one will, no one is able. But there's one other phrase in there that I want you guys to to look at for just a second. It says, and I know them. They hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He said earlier in verses 14 and 15, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Wow. That's pretty deep. This knowing is key. Through faith, we're known by Christ. It's an intimate relational term. The eminent scholar Bill Gross says, we're united to Christ by faith. And made one with him. He is in himself our righteousness. We don't obtain righteousness through him. We find our righteousness in Christ. And his righteousness is counted by God as ours, by faith alone in Christ alone. It's never separate from him. That's the knowing. He knows you. It's this intimate relationship, just like the intimate relationship that Jesus has with the Father. This alone is our assurance of eternal life, that we're known by Him. We're held by Him. We're in Christ. Our assurance is wholly found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and not in my faithfulness or your faithfulness and not in my works or your works. Amen? And it's because of this truth that we can experience abundant life. So, what's abundant life? It's living in the peace, the rest, the freedom, the hope, and assurance that Jesus has done everything necessary for us in his death on the cross. It's living, walking, in the peace, the rest, the freedom, the hope, and the assurance of what Christ has done. It's living in the knowledge and the confidence that death and Satan have been defeated, that God has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages we might show, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness, toward who? Toward us, in Christ Jesus. It's believing and knowing that we're in him, that we're known by him. John sent me, John, Bill sent me John's words, not John sent me Bill's words. That'd be weird if John Bunyan emailed me. I'm just saying. Wouldn't it? Just... John Bunyan writes, the Lord led me into apprehending, that's my word, I put apprehending in there so you guys could understand. The Lord led me into apprehending the mystery of union with the Son of God, that I was joined to Him, that I was flesh of His flesh and bone of His bones, and now that word was sweet to me. Ah, taste can taste that abundant life. By this also my faith in him was more confirmed, such is my righteousness. For if he and I are one, listen to this, if Jesus and you are one, then his righteousness is yours. His merits are yours. His victory is yours. That's abundant life. You have the victory. You are known by Christ. You're in Christ. Living in this knowledge. Having this peace. Having this assurance. Having this freedom. This is abundant life. Now contrast this with the religious leaders described in this passage. Verse 10. The thief comes only, only, only to steal and kill and destroy. Verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. Ah!" And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He then goes on to say, many of them said, Jesus, he has a demon. This guy's insane. Why would you listen to him? False shepherds say the same. They want you to hear their voices, not his, so they can steal and kill your present experience and assurance of these truths to destroy your abundant life in Jesus' in the here and now. Now now hear this. This is important. The enemy cannot do anything in relation to your salvation, right? We just covered that. It's eternal. Forever. Done. Period. Mic drop. It's over. So, since he can't do anything about your salvation, he's going to attack the abundance of experiencing its truth. to get you to doubt and to despair, to be disquieted, anxious, and then secure. And he does this through questioning these very truths. Some of these wolves in shepherd's clothing deny that a substitutionary sacrifice is necessary to purchase forgiveness. Others proffer a universalistic paradigm where all sheep go to heaven. It's like all dogs go to heaven, but it's all sheep that go to heaven. No matter what door they go through, declaring love wins what is love i have no idea it feels good though i don't know what it is it's it's their love is devoid it's a sentiment devoid of righteousness holiness justice truth and love still others allege that salvation can be lost that our forgiveness is continually in a state of flux you know salvation's fluid You get it and you lose it and you get it and you lose it and you get it. How many times would you need to be baptized? Every day? Like multiple times a day. Never mind. Your salvation is continually in a state of flux depending upon how well you're currently obeying the commandments. This is where assurance and security go to die. For here our salvation hinges on our works and our faithfulness rather than on Christ and his works and his faithfulness. To this baloney, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And this leads us to our final truth. As the good shepherd, Jesus guarantees his sheep of these truths. Look again at how Jesus assured or guaranteed his audience that these things that he said are true. He says, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. But then he brings the Father in. My Father who has given them to me. There's a whole doctrinal thing there, but we just don't have time. This Father, he is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one the basis upon which Jesus can guarantee that these things are true and will happen exactly as he has said is his union with the Father. I and the Father are one. Now, when he said this, it didn't go too well. The Jews picked up stones again, again, I I love that just little again that John put in there because it wasn't the first time. Picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus was like, Well, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? (laughs) The Jews answered, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So were they right? Had Jesus, had they interpreted Jesus' words correctly here? Was he here claiming to be God Almighty? Or was he just saying, you know, me and the Father, we both have the same goal. We're united in purpose. Well, the short answer is yes! They understood Jesus clearly and unreservedly. He here unequivocally claims to be divine, to be one and the same in nature as the Father. That's why he can make these guarantees and so they pick up stones to kill him. In modern linger, they pull back the trigger and are ready to pull and are ready to or pull back the what is that? Hammer. Good job, thank you. I am gun savvy, I tell you what. <laughs> but before they pull the triggers or the stone, throw the stones, Jesus speaks again and he says something pretty perplexing. It's really interesting what he says. He diffuses This volatile situation. I mean, it is volatile. They're ready to kill this man, right? And Jesus diffuses the situation by not by denying the assertion nor by correcting their interpretation of his words but by deflecting their attention. Hmm. Squirrel. Hmm. You see, Jesus' time had not yet come. How many times is that said in John? He had more ministry to do. And so in classic form, just like he does continually throughout the book, he turns their attention to a question about their interpretation and application of the law. Why? Well, because this whole section is about the contrast between them and Jesus, between their so-called shepherding and Jesus shepherding. And so Jesus says, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? Now this direct quote from Psalm 82, I want to read it to you. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So the psalm, Is addressing the earthly judges and administrators of God's law. Or in other words, it's addressing Israel's shepherds. In it, the title that Asaph uses to address these judges and administrators is Elohim, which is the most frequently used word for God or gods. These judges are called gods or sons of the Most High, as you saw, not because they're divine. Not because they're deities, but because they act as God's representatives in their roles as judges. They are commissioned to a special task, to a holy task. And in God's name, they are to exercise this authority and power to do something. What does it say they're supposed to do? They're supposed to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. They're representing God. God wants them to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. And to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. You represent me in rescuing the weak and the needy, and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's pretty simple, straightforward task for Israel shepherds, right? No! Not them, it is. Yes, this psalm is not praising these judges for rightly discharging their duties but it's rebuking them for their wicked and unjust exercise of their authority that they've been given. Jesus here turns the discussion from his claims to them and their wickedness. Rather than deal with their challenge, he turns the tables to challenge them and their duplicitous and inconsistent use of Scripture. They wouldn't dream of charging the psalmist with blasphemy, So why then do they charge Jesus? If it was proper of Asaph to call these unjust rulers sons of the Most High, he calls unjust rulers gods and sons of the Most High. How much more appropriate is it of Jesus, (laughs) who did everything that he was supposed to do as a shepherd of Israel, to make the claim that he is the Son of God, which is what he says. If, If he called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? But they're not concerned. They're not concerned with what is right, with a right interpretation or right administration of the word. Jesus is inferring that his accusers are just like the judges in this psalm who have the word of God and yet misuse it. They misapply it. He's saying, look in the mirror. He flips the accusation of wrongdoing around and he points it at them. I wish I were cool like that. Jesus is applying this psalm's true rebuke to them Because they continue to judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked. Why do you think they kicked the blind man out of the temple? They're the ones who have neither knowledge nor understanding and walk about in darkness. Oh, wait, this goes back to that first analogy that Jesus uses. They claim to see, they're blind, they walk in darkness. They claim to be Israel's shepherds who represent God, but they're thieves and robbers. In essence, Jesus is saying, Look at my works and look at theirs. Look at the difference. Compare us to see which of us is truly God's representative. Whose word will you hear? Who will you follow? Modern day false shepherds aren't much different. They too twist the scriptures to justify themselves and their behaviors. They too use the scriptures to manipulate people for their own advantage. They try and twist passages just like this one to diminish Jesus and exalt themselves. They use the Bible as a weapon. They walk about in darkness while proclaiming to see the light and summon you to listen to them. Listen to me, listen. I've got some truth for you. They walk about in darkness while proclaiming to see the light and beckon you, come on. They proclaim a Jesus who is not God with a gospel that cannot save to God's God's people God's sheep, to lose their confidence and assurance. To this, Jesus replies, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The application, the response that this calls for, It's pretty straightforward, and I've repeated it several times in this message. Hear his voice, follow him. There's a pretty interesting court case that happened in Australia a few years back. A man had been accused of and arrested for stealing another man's sheep. As he was being arrested, the man protested that the sheep was one of his own that had been missing for many days. Well, when he was in the courtroom, the man continued to maintain his innocence, alleging that it was not the plainest sheep, but his own. After hearing both sides, the judge was in a quandary, not knowing how to decide the matter, one man's word against another. And so he decided to call upon one final witness. The sheep. Once the animal was in the courtroom, the judge ordered the plaintiff to step outside into the courtyard and call the animal. Upon hearing the loud call amid the silent court- courtroom, the sheep looked briefly in that direction and then turned in the opposite direction and took several steps away. The judge then instructed the defendant to go into the courtyard and do the same. When the accused man began to make his distinctive call, with his distinctive voice, the sheep let out an excited bleat and bounded toward the door. It was obvious that the sheep recognized the familiar voice of his master. The judge said, he knows, his sheep knows him. And he dismissed the case and returned the sheep to its proper owner. Hear Jesus' voice and follow him. Become totally familiar with it so that you discern between it and others and walk in the peace and confidence of his deity and exclusivity. Rest in the security and assurance of his sin-atoning sacrifice and conquest of death. Rejoice that he has gathered you to himself, that he knows you, And will stay by your side to guide you to green pastures and beside still waters. If I can get the worship team to come forward, I thought I would just read Psalm 23 over you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want.